Well, before I launch into the sermon, I just need to say something. Pastors are human, and sometimes we blow it, and we need to apologize when we blow it. I'm at one of those stages right now where I need to offer an apology, and I need to do so publicly. Uh, A few weeks back, in my zeal to endorse Brother Daniel here to to serve as my replacement, um, I gave the impression that perhaps Brother Brian was not up to the task of pastoring the church while I was gone. And I did not mean to convey that at all. I have utmost confidence in Pastor Brian. He is a godly man, and in many ways he embodies the gospel better than I do. Uh, I'm going to double down and still say that Pastor Daniel is also going to do a great job uh, while I'm gone, and you can come to him. And In fact, my intent in the way that I presented it was that, that hopefully that you would come to him and, and Brian would be able to maintain his own responsibilities and, and also to, to spearhead what we're looking into for our church planning opportunities in the days ahead uh, so that he would have time to, to focus on those things. But I want to apologize. Uh, I also want to make sure I already did this with Brian earlier this week. As soon as I realized what I had done, Uh, so that I would be able to get into the pulpit and be able to preach the Word of God to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that comes only from the cross that covers a multitude of sins. I thank you, Lord, for my brother Brian. I pray, Lord, as you are leading him to preach this day over at Haven Baptist to fill in that pulpit, that, Lord, you are filling him with unction and the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that he would have confidence in knowing that he has you as his God. I pray the same for myself, Lord, this morning, that I would only portray the things, Lord, that are revealed in your word, and that through that, Christ might be magnified, that our hearts might be drawn to him, and no man ever, only to Jesus. So, Lord, may you have full reign of our hearts this morning, and may your word penetrate deeply into it. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. The last time I was with you, we had begun what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse. This was an extended lesson that Jesus exclusively taught to his disciples on one of the evenings of Holy Week. We know from Luke's Gospel, after a day in the city, each night he would return to the Mount of Olives to rest and spend time with his disciples. And the reason for this particular lesson was due to an event that happened earlier in the day. The disciples were marveling at the temple building, and Jesus said something to them that was utterly shocking. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus just predicted that the Jewish temple of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. In the minds of the disciples, that would have been completely catastrophic. The temple was the place where one brought their sacrifices to be reconciled to a holy God for their sin. How could one be made right with God? And they're thinking this must mark the end of the age. Surely the Lord Jesus would establish his throne and the judgment of the nations would commence. Therefore, once they reached the Mount of Olives, they asked Jesus their question here in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Now, please note, there are three different questions here. When will these things be? That these things refer to the destruction of the temple that Jesus spoke of in verse 2. Both Mark and Luke, within their Gospels, indicate that this is the context. Then the disciples make an assumption that with the destruction of the temple, this will also include Jesus' ascension to the throne and the end of the age when God the Father will restore his ultimate favor to his chosen people and they will rule the nations. They assume this is a simultaneous event. All of this was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets, so it would be natural for these men to presume that all of these things would happen all at once. Matthew's recounting of the Olivet Discourse can be a little confusing without reference to his own purposes. Luke's account of this event is fairly straightforward and sequential when it comes to the order of future events. But reading Matthew can be like riding with someone in a five-speed car for the very first time. You notice that the driver has one hand on the wheel and the other on the stick, and the passenger can see where they're going, but they might wonder why the driver continues to shift gears in order to get there. Matthew leaves me feeling a little bit that way. So much so I struggled to give you a dividing outline that might only serve to confuse you a little bit more. But, but as a help, we need to understand Matthew's overall purposes, and that's going to help us understand why he arranges his material in the way that he has. Matthew has often been called the gospel written to the Jews. Now, I hope over the couple of years that we've been working through Matthew, you know that that is too narrow of a focus. Matthew's gospel is for all people everywhere. But it does have a stronger Jewish flavor, so to speak, than the Gentiles' Luke's gospel or John's gospel when he wrote after the destruction of the temple that's mentioned here. There is much more Jewish theology in Matthew than is in Mark's abbreviated gospel. Matthew has been writing his gospel with his fellow Jews in mind. He demonstrated at the very beginning of his work that Jesus is the true seed of Abraham. He is the true kingly descendant of David, and he is the Messiah come to redeem his people from the exile of their sins. Matthew wants everyone to know this. But in expressing these truths, Matthew needs his fellow Jews to know with the first advent of Jesus the old way of being reconciled to Yahweh in the temple is now over. Jesus has come to be the only way that a person can be made right to a holy God. Matthew emphasizes here, though foretold in prophecy, something completely new is about to occur through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And no longer will the temple be necessary. In addition to all this, all along in this gospel, he's been communicating that, that if one follows Jesus, there is a cross that they must personally bear. There will be a need for endurance. Our author reminds the reader that while the suffering and the persecution might be intense, that the one they follow is worthy. And in the midst of such trials, such persecution, it will be a testimony to the nations that Christ is worthy. Now, with this emphasis in mind, we can press on with the sermon here. The disciples cannot imagine a life without the temple. Therefore, once it's over, then the end, as we know it, must be happening. In verses 4 through 14, Jesus starts by describing the situation leading to the end. And I'm tempted to call this event 1.0. This is the main program that's always running in the background as you're working on your computer. Only in Huntsville 
would that come across so well in the pulpit? We're still in this portion today. Jesus wants his disciples to know what the days ahead are going to look like as they endure to the very end. What it's going to look like for those that follow him. He is completely honest with them that there will be difficult days ahead as they live for him. There will be troubles of this life. There will be false teachers, wars, natural disasters, and conflict. And in addition to all of this, his disciples will suffer tribulation, verse 9, indicating a persecution as they proclaim the gospel until the end. They will be hated by all nations for his sake. Jesus refers to these days as tribulation, and he wants his followers to prepare for it. That will be the general state of things until his second coming. Now in verse 15, he shifts gears, which is a feature of apocalyptic writing, in order to describe a different stream of the same concurrent events. I'm tempted to call this situation, or call it situation 1.5 here. Same program running in the background, but with an update. He will address the destruction of the temple. And as he begins this next part of the discourse with a reference to the abomination of desolation, and he also makes reference to the book of Daniel. In the apocalyptic section of his book, Daniel prophesied in chapter 11, verse 31, that a Ptolemaic king would desecrate the temple in some manner which would cease its daily sacrifices. Daniel predicted this while in exile some 300 years before the event happened. And this occurred exactly as the prophet foretold as he describes the events of the 2nd century B.C. In exactly the year 168 B.C., angry at the Jews for siding with his adversary, Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, surrounded and sacked the city of Jerusalem. And he installed himself as the high priest of the temple, and he dedicated the building to the worship of Zeus, and he brought within the temple a meteorite to be worshipped as an idol, and then he slaughtered a pig on the altar, making the temple unconsecrated for many years until the Maccabean revolt. Jesus makes reference to that event as a type of what is about to come. Now, some present-day scholars interpret this as a new abomination of desecration, as some event that must occur in the future, that a new temple must be rebuilt and some sort of pig slaughtered on the altar sometime in the future for this to happen. Luke's account does not give us that option. He tells us what it is, whereas Matthew provides a literary reference that all the Jews would understand the severity of the event. Listen to Luke chapter 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. According to Luke, this desolation is about to occur in the same fashion as when the Gentile Antiochus surrounded and sacked Jerusalem. That when the present Jews see armies surrounding the city, the destruction of the temple is about to occur. Judaism, as the disciples knew it, would end. And it did. The Jews rebelled against Rome in 66 AD and successfully expelled the Romans from Jerusalem. And it's a good time to revolt as the empire came under disarray. The Roman emperor Nero was losing his mind and everything was in turmoil. And after he died in 68 AD, there were four different men, each with their own armies, that were contending for the emperor's throne. 
civil war broke out in the empire, pitting Roman against Roman. And the Jews took advantage of this and cast the Romans out of the city, thinking they were finally safe from their rule. However, once power was restored under the emperor Vespasian, Rome turned its attention to the rebelling Jews. Within one generation, in 70 AD, the Roman Gentiles sacked and burned Jerusalem to the ground. The inhabitants of the city that, that were not slaughtered were sold into slavery, and they utterly destroyed the temple. This all occurred not just because of their rebellion. It was also a judgment. Jesus just said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 38, that their house has been made desolate. Notice the same word used here in verse 15. Judgment has come upon the Jewish nation for rejecting their Messiah. And if they ever did rebuild their temple again, that would be an abomination before the Lord. Because God has made only one way that a person can be made right with him, the sufficient atonement in the God-man Jesus Christ. To make another sacrifice would mean that somehow Christ's work was somehow incomplete. So with this reckoning coming, Jesus warns here that when they see these armies coming, what are they to do? They are to flee for their lives. This message, if you notice, is for the disciples exclusively. Verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Jesus is concerned for anything that might inhibit their flight. And alas, verse 19, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. The church historian Eusebius records that many Christians did just that. They deserted the city when they saw the armies approaching. They followed the counsel of Jesus, and here is why. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not... Uh, such as had not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He warns believers that remain near in the city regarding false prophecies, signaling either his return again or another Christ has arrived. Verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you these things beforehand. He wants them to know what is coming. All of this did happen in the seizure of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Let me describe what happened. As the Romans cut off supplies to the city... Both starvation from lack of food and plague from the inability to dispose of waste broke out among the people. The Romans had developed new siege engines or catapults that could launch huge stones into the city and into the walls. The men of the city fought all during the day and they repaired the wall at night and they were dropping from exhaustion. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, conditions were so bad that bodies littered the streets and some Jews even began to boil their own children and eat them. They were encouraged to do so by the zealot leadership to do this for the cause. Josephus describes the leaders as being so arrogant 
and godless in the situation, that he was not surprised that Yahweh executed judgment and treated Jerusalem as Sodom. Josephus also said that many false prophets arose in those days. When conditions in the city were at their worst, the commanding general, Titus, the son of the emperor, offered to negotiate a peace with the citizens. The leaders within the city sent out false prophets to give false hope to the people from deserting their fortifications. Listen to this account by the historian. He attributes the city's doom due to a false prophet. Quote, A false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction, who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to get up on the temple and that there should, be, should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. So in other words, this man stood before the people as the Romans invaded the city and told them that they're going to be safe as long as they stayed in or on the temple, the very building that Jesus just said was going to be destroyed. Josephus went on to write, quote, Now there was then a great number of false prophets suborned by the tyrants to impose upon the people who denounced this to them, that they should wait for the deliverance from God. And this was in order to keep them from deserting and that they might be buoyed up above fear and care by such hopes. Now a man that is in adversity does easily comply with such promises. For when such a seducer makes him believe that he shall be delivered from those miseries which oppress him, then it is that the patient is full of hopes of such deliverance, end quote. Needless to say, these false prophets in Jerusalem were giving the opposite advice of what Jesus was declaring. Jesus told them to flee the destruction that was coming. These men told them to stay and hide in the very place that Jesus said would be toppled. You may ask, well, Blair, what, what about the great tribulation? What happened to Jerusalem sounds pretty bad, but it seems like there's been worse things that have happened. What about events like the Holocaust that happened to the Jews? Such questions assume, A, one is unfamiliar with just how bad the siege was, or that Jesus might be making a hyperbolic statement in his warning, and B, that there is only one tribulation and not a continuous one. Remember, Jesus just spoke of his elect in the passage. Back in verse 9, he speaks of his followers enduring tribulation. He's going to refer to that again in verse 29. Back in chapter 13, verse 21, he spoke of a tribulation that will prove whether or not one is truly saved. In context here, Jesus' concern is for those who are believers already. The warnings are for them, not the Jewish people in general. The tribulation seems to be those who are enduring extreme hardship for the sake of Christ. But I also need to close out verses 26 and 27 here. Jesus offers help to the believers here. When the false news goes out in Jerusalem under siege and people say that the Messiah has arrived here, Jesus says, don't worry. You're not going to need a rumor to let you know that he has returned. Everyone will know when that happens because it's going to be made plain to all. Verse 26, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus issues a proverb here concerning the matter of Jerusalem which we understand a little bit better from the sense of Luke's account as he speaks of the Roman armies approaching the city. Verse 28, 
Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The reason the vultures are gathering is because there is something dead to attract them. In this case, it is the desolate house of Jerusalem. Luke is again helpful here as he describes the end of the temple period. Luke 21, verse 24, chapter 21, verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. While the era of the temple sacrificial system is dead, there is still a time of the Gentiles that is being fulfilled even to this day. So we're left with just a bit of conundrum as Jesus does describe this eventual second advent in the next series of verse. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he says these next things will occur. The things described are cosmic calamities, sun and moon darkened, stars falling, heavens shaken, and some sort of sign in which all the tribes of the earth are able to see it all at once, much like what's described in verse 27. The problem is, in this set of verses, is not if they could happen, but did this fail to occur when Jesus said it would? Well, the answer depends what Jesus means when he says the tribulation of those days. If the tribulation refers only to the period of siege during the, the time when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, then something went wrong because Jesus used the words after the tribulation of those days. Some of my Ah Mill colleagues want to say these cosmic signs are metaphorical or figurative to describe the new age. For example, this is what happened when Stephen saw his vision in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 56. I don't think so. Every time in the New Testament we have a reference to the Son of Man coming on the clouds, it refers to Jesus' second advent in a literal sense. Some others say the Great Tribulation has yet to start or occur. This must be a reference to a future event as yet to happen, tribulation that we're still waiting upon. Luke's account seems to render such an interpretation unlikely. And if we're to be honest from what we've just read in Matthew, it would not seem to do justice to the text as he seems clearly to be describing the destruction of the temple in verses 15 through 26 and what believers might suffer as a result of it. Therefore, those days of tribulation in verse 29 must refer to the overall tribulation that Jesus made reference to back in verse 9. We are still in those days. We are still in the program of 1.5. Christians can expect to endure tribulation until the Lord returns. All four Gospels confirm this, as well as the rest of the New Testament. When the tribulation under the Lord's purposes has concluded, as verse 30 and 31 tell us, we will all see Jesus come in his glory and he will gather his elect. And notice from where he will gather them, not just the ends of the earth, four winds is an idiom that means all directions, but they will also be coming from heaven. What a day! I can't wait to see it. All the saints dressed in the righteousness of Christ gathered together in one event? No wonder the tribes of the earth that don't know him will mourn. They will have just missed out on the great redemption from this sinful world. They will see their pending judgment. It allows us to understand the meaning of the fig tree once again. Unlike the cursed fig tree of chapter 21, verses 18 through 19, this one shows signs of living 
and it will bear fruit. It prepares you when the season is ripe. Verse 32, when the, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is very near the gate. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The promise is secure. It's going to happen. Why? Because Jesus just guaranteed it with his words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It will happen. Everything that Jesus predicted in verses 4 through 26 has occurred exactly as Matthew, Mark, and Luke portrayed, save the coming of the Son of Man, which happens when the days of the Gentiles are complete and the tribulation is over. And just as Jesus said, technically, we could say that all of it, save his coming, had already occurred within one generation, as he predicted. His followers would endure affliction in a sin-sick world. They would be persecuted by Jew and Gentile alike. Jerusalem would undergo a siege of immense suffering, resulting in the invasion of Gentile armies and the complete destruction of the temple as a testimony to the new age that the only way to be reconciled to God is through his son, Jesus. Lord willing, next week we will complete the Olivet Discourse. We'll look at how Jesus will teach that no one will know the day or the hour of his coming once the temple is destroyed. And when he comes, the judgment upon the nations will occur and why a Christian must be watchful and to be prepared for such an event even though they don't know when it will happen. But before we go there, there there's just a few applications here before we do go. Number one, Folks, as believers, we must continue to be honest about our situation. We live in a sin-stained world that will cause pain and discomfort while we are upon it. We will go through tribulation. Our hope is not in science to cure diseases. It's not in laws to legalize morality. It's not in our wealth to provide comfort or ease. Our hope that we look towards is Jesus. And he's up front and he's honest with us about it. This whole discourse by Jesus is meant to encourage our endurance to the end. Second, our situation is temporary. Jesus will return. All of this is temporary. It's all under the God-ordained plan that points us toward our salvation in Christ. Every sickness makes us long for his coming. Every death makes us long for his coming. Every betrayal makes us long for his coming. And he will come. He has kept his promise to us. The fact that Jesus just described the destruction of Jerusalem gives me every reason to have confidence that the future events are true as well. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. Third, it's not just that he returns. His elect will be gathered to him. His elect will be gathered to him. That includes the saints of old, those who have preceded us in death. They will be gathered with him 
as a sign of his victory that he has ruled over sin and death. Nothing can stop our conquering king. He is the one that grants life, and the proof will be there alongside of him as we all join with Christ in that moment. I'm looking forward to that. There's people I know I'm going to see again. I long to see Jesus. <laughs> Trust me, that's the first one that I want to bow down and hug. But there are other loved ones I can't wait to see. The proof is there. Fourth, and this is really important, folks, there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way. It's only in faith in Jesus Christ what he did on the cross. Amen. That is sufficient. Nothing else will save you. And I have to say this that because I, I think so many people are, are thinking they must add to Christ's work on the cross in some way in order to make themselves right before God. No, it is only what Jesus has done. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were merely a foreshadowing of this event, that a once-for-all sacrifice would be made on behalf of the Lord's people. And that's Jesus. That's what he did. That's the only thing that can save you. And then fifth, last, don't neglect noticing how Jesus comes. I believe that Jesus could come at any moment. Any moment. I'm not waiting for anything else to occur. It could happen now. Or now. Or now. I believe it wholeheartedly. I'm not waiting for other events to be fulfilled. I believe he is coming and he is coming soon. And unlike the obscure birth in a stable, this time Jesus will come in a manner that all will see him. To the unsaved, they will see their utter doom. Judgment is coming and it will make the unredeemed tremble. But to the elect, what a sight when our rescuer comes. Heaven and earth will pass away, and he will topple this world just as he toppled the temple in Jerusalem. But do not mourn this world. We will have a brand new heaven and redeemed earth exactly as God intended from the beginning, fresh, without any sin. As Luke says in Luke 21, 28, now when these things begin to take place, not a reason to mourn. He says, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. In those days, we will walk with him in the garden once again as he intended. Without any separation, with full intimacy, we'll no longer battle sin, we'll no longer fear death, we'll no longer fear losing our loved ones. We are bound for a promised land unlike anything that we can imagine with our King who has made the way and is leading the way for us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, let us read a text such as this and not tremble. Allow us, Lord, to gain hope, to gain confidence that you are sovereignly in control 
that, Lord, even when we look out upon the world and we think it's chaotic, that surely things are lost, surely things are too far gone, that we would remember that, Lord, you have told us that we could expect such an occasion. And that the hope is the full redemption that comes with your Son. And so, Lord, let us anticipate that day. Let, let us take hope. Let us be excited. Let us motivate us to witness and to share the gospel with those who don't know it, Lord, so that they can participate in this glorious event. Allow it, Lord, to, to raise our hopes in such a way that, Lord, we will work either to the ends of our own days that you have ordained or until your son returns. Because, Lord, we know there is something much greater awaiting us. That while we stand here in the midst of this stormy life, you have prepared and made a way for us to be with you in all peace as a refuge. We pray that would be our hope this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.